to stand before you tonight. And I want to say thank you to the church and committee for asking me to come back. Uh, the study and preparation for this lesson has been a great benefit to me. And uh, I just appreciate the opportunity to be able to do it. And uh, I pray that the Lord would speak to your heart as he has to mine. And uh, it's always, as a, a teacher, a minister of the gospel, um, the part you wish you could get out of the way is the human vessel that seems to mess up the really good message. Uh, I always say the material is amazing. The messenger sometimes has troubles. But um, I hope tonight that the messenger doesn't stand in the way of the, the beautiful message of his word. Um, and so uh, I'm going to go ahead and get right into it. Uh, I don't think I've ever finished one of my lessons here at the Winter Bible Studies. And I'm sure you can tell by the thickness of what was handed out there that this one might be a challenge as well. But um, I just pray the Lord would, would help us with that. Um, my topic, um, some of the preachers gave me a hard time, said I had the easiest one of the year. Um, that may be the case, and I'm thankful for it if that is. Um, but certainly, uh, women of the Bible may have been a, a better title, may have been obscure women of the Bible. I think we all know that by now. Uh, the women that each of the brethren were given, uh, we don't know very much about it because God chose to not give us very much detail in Scripture about them. That being said, they are there, and we do know something about them, and we know that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so with that understanding, we prayerfully enter into this study and ask God to teach us what's there uh, and to use it for His glory, and certainly uh, we want Him to do that. Um, in a study like this, uh, I, was, I had a few concerns on my heart before I even started, and um, I asked the Lord to help guard my heart against a couple of concerns. Um, the first one is that I would not read into Scripture what isn't there. Um, when you're dealing with individuals that you know very little about, it is always a temptation of mine to fill in the backstory, <laughs> to add things, right? Because we want a complete picture. We want a, we want a storyline. We like it like that. Uh, but that is a, a slippery slope when we start to do that with the Scripture. Uh, we need to, to make sure that we don't add things that the Lord doesn't intend for us uh, to, to see there. Uh, I think, you know, there's a difference between inference and conjecture. An inference uh, takes, uh, while the passage may not say something directly, the evidence is within the context to be able to infer a truth from it. I think that's good, and God helps us by His Spirit to make those inferences. And then there's conjectures, which are conclusions that are based off incomplete information, that the information's not there, and we begin to make conjectures about it. And that's where it gets dangerous, where we can create whole doctrines off of things that aren't actually in the Scripture and are just conjectures in our heart. And that's something in Bible study, again, and, and the preaching of the gospel that we need to be uh, very cautious about, that we don't just add things that aren't what the Lord intended us uh, to have. And so I prayed that God would help me to, to not read into Scripture what isn't there. Secondly, um, we know that right now, um, when you're dealing with a single gender, like we are here, um, when we're talking about females only, that there's a lot of cultural pressure that goes along with that right now. Within and without the church, people are trying to change the clear biblical truths about gender and gender roles. Um, and that is happening very profoundly uh, in, in very uh, powerful and upfront ways as, as well as subtle ways to all of us. Uh, and so in that understanding, I ask God to help me to avoid the extremes of responding to that. One extreme would be to overcorrect, to give the women that I'm going to speak of tonight less significance than what they actually deserve. Because I'm trying to overcorrect from from cultural's push to elevate women to places where the Bible says they don't belong. And so in overcorrecting, I dishonor and don't give them the significance that's clearly in Scripture. And I don't want to do that. I want to give the significance and honor to these women that the Scripture gives. On the other hand, as I've said before, I don't want to be so pressured by culture that I just give greater significance than what the Scripture itself gives to it. Right? And so we want to find... Uh, again, what thus saith the word of the Lord, and we'll try to do that tonight. My assigned lesson is the women who assisted the Apostle Paul. Um, now, there were five names listed. 
uh, on the flyer that was passed out. Those names were Phoebe, Chloe, Nymphus, Junia, and Priscilla. Now, we'll see if I did interpret you correct, brother. Uh, as I talked to him on the phone, he told me not that I didn't have to limit myself to those five names, that it was the, the women that assisted the Apostle Paul. And he made a specific reference to Romans 16, uh, which is greetings that Paul gives to the Christians in Rome. And he lists several women on that list, some that are listed here. Uh, and in my studies, I, my heart quickly became attached to Romans 16. And so a significant portion of our time will be spent uh, in Romans 16 tonight addressing uh, the women that are there. Um, so, the first half of this lesson, I think, is going to be pretty academic, and I know a lot of these lessons are by their very nature and the character studies that they are, so I, I just pray that you would give your attention and your heart to it. Uh, in the second half, if you can bear with me that long, uh, I think we'll see some how, how this bears on our life and some of the lessons that we can learn uh, and apply from the things that we learn from these women. Uh, so, um, in all of Paul's letters, if I counted correctly, and with a few caveats that I'll mention in a little bit, uh, there are 18 women spoken of. Ten of those are greeted in the close of Paul's letter to the Romans. So, in all of his letters, 18 women are spoken of. Uh, Ten of those 18 are specifically mentioned in his greetings in Rome. So, most of them are there in Romans 16. Um, and then, uh, so, first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the eight that Paul mentions in his other letters, in his other epistles, as well as two that Luke talks about had interactions with Paul in the book of Acts, in the history book of the church. And so we're going to look at those, those eight plus two, or ten, and then we're going to look at the other ten in Romans and spend most of our time there. And so, um, obviously, I didn't write a very good outline, uh, but I do hope that this could possibly be a resource to you uh, in the future. Um, and we'll try to follow it. Uh, we'll, we'll follow it pretty close. I'll read tonight more than I typically would ever do, um, but we want to try to get across what the Lord has put on our heart. So um, on page two, uh, the list of these, these women begins, and so if you're following along, you can and go there. The first one we're going to talk about is uh, Aphia. Uh, she is found in Philemon chapter 1 um, and verse 2. And this is the only place in the scripture where we will find her name. The majority of these women have one verse in all of scripture. And again, as I'm trying not to make these conjectures, uh, we can only state what is there. And so some of them will be very, very brief as we go through. Um, uh, we know of Philemon is a, um, let's, let's go ahead and read it. Philemon, Philemon, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, Unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to beloved Aphia and Achippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Uh, Aphia, excuse me, is only mentioned once in the Bible in the greeting in Paul's letter to Philemon. And this letter, we know, is a, a letter that Paul sent to an individual. Okay? It's unique in that. Uh, and it was to address a domestic issue uh, with a runaway slave named Onesimus. So Onesimus had run away from his owner Philemon, and at some point in his journey had run across Paul. The gospel had gotten to his heart, saved his soul, and they found there was a friendship clearly created between Onesimus and Paul. And Paul writes this letter back to Philemon, uh, saying that he's going to send Onesimus back, and he requests that Philemon to receive him back, no longer as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother. Um, so that being said... This letter is addressed to him, and coupled with that is Aphia. Now, it's pretty clear that in Scripture, when those two names like that, male and female, are linked together, that they're husband and wife. It's almost always the case. Uh, and so I think it is safe to infer that this was his wife. It is a domestic issue to a household that he's asking uh, them to receive that, this slave back as a, as a brother in Christ and not as a bondservant. And so we can infer that this was... Um, Philemon's uh, wife. Um, she is addressed as beloved by Paul, and furthermore, Paul references the church that was in their house, uh, which would have been in Colossae, and so uh, her and her husband had a church in their home, uh, which was often the case in the New Testament. Uh, that's what we know of Aphia. Uh, second is Chloe. She was one of the five that was on the list, uh, and one of the first ones I looked at and said, man, this is going to be the shortest lesson in the history of mankind. 
because she is mentioned once, and there is absolutely nothing specific about her that is even mentioned in the verse. So in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writing to Corinth, says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So this is the only time her name is mentioned, and it's really not even about her. It's about members of her household. Uh, Most think it was servants or slaves in her household. We don't know that. Uh, But someone in her household delivered um, news to Paul, shared information with him that there was contentions within the church at Corinth, And Paul goes on to write 1 Corinthians addressing those issues that he heard from those members of Chloe's house. I think anything else that we say about her um, is more than what the Scripture gives us. Third is Claudia. Uh, She's mentioned in 2 Timothy 4. Um, She's listed uh, with a group of of people. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Uh, Eubulus greeteth thee, and Puddins and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. So Paul writing to young Timothy, uh, he includes in that a list of people that wanted to greet Timothy. So we can safely say that Claudia was a friend of Timothy, a friend of Paul, and as Paul was writing this correspondence to Timothy, she wanted to jump in and say hello to him too, to give her love to him. Uh, and that's that's uh, what we have. Her, she's sending greetings to Timothy. Uh Women four and five, Eunice and Lois, uh, we find them first uh, well, only listed by name in 2 Timothy 1.5, uh, more familiar scripture, I think, to many of us. Again, Paul writing to Timothy, and uh, as he, he begins this letter, he, he has this deep love for his, his beloved son, Timothy, his son in the faith, and he's recalling the faithfulness of Timothy and desiring that they might be back together and and wanting to be with him, and as he desire, as he as he remembers the sincere faith of Timothy, he says that that faith that Timothy had first dwelt in his mother and his grandmother. Let's read. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned or sincere faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. And so uh, Paul, again thinking about the sincere faith of Timothy, states that that faith first dwelt in his mother. And grandmother, um, and there's a there's a beautiful picture, uh, certainly in that. Eunice is also referenced as Timothy's mother in Acts 16 and 1. We find out a little bit more information on her. Uh, it reads, "Then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek." So we learn that his mother Eunice was a Jew and that she was a believer, a believer in Christ. Uh, and certainly, I think we could have inferred that from what Paul said about her sincere faith that was passed on to Timothy. Uh, but here it makes it clear. And then says, but his father was a Greek. And while, again, it doesn't tell us uh, definitively, I think we can infer that his father was an unbeliever, uh, a, a Gentile that didn't believe, where his mother was a Jew and a believer. And so what Timothy was learning and what was being rooted in his heart as a child was the teaching of his grandmother and his mother. And the impact that they had on him uh, is profound. Um, Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy. He says, uh, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So again, Paul making an observation about the faith of Timothy. And he said, uh, that he has known the Holy Scriptures um, since the time he was a child. And since he lived with a believing mother and a Greek uncircumcised father, it was his mother and his grandmother and that faith that they had, and clearly there was a diligence in that home to teach the Scriptures which are able to lead thee to salvation to young Timothy. Uh, what an amazing uh, impact that they had. Six and seven, uh, you have Yodis, Yodius and Syntyche. Yodius and Syntyche. Uh, Paul writes of them in the Philippian letter. He says, I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. 
So Paul, specifically in this letter, references some sort of division that was happening, some sort of schism that was happening between two of the women believers in that, uh, in that church. And he was scared that the division that was between these two women was going to affect the unity of the church as a whole. And he had a deep desire that that, that division amongst them would be healed and that they would be reconciled. And he reaches out to an unknown uh, companion to try to pull these women together to, to, to reconcile the things uh, that were going on. Now, in that, he also um, says something about them. He says, they labored with me in the gospel. And so you see Paul's concern that these two women that worked hard and labored with him in the gospel now had division amongst them, and he was very passionate for Paul that this thing be taken care of, that these were too, they were too important to the, the cause of the gospel to continue to have this division amongst them, and Paul wants to take care of it and states it specifically in the letter that he sent. Uh, number eight, Nymphus or Nympha? All right, the Nymphus was also uh, listed uh, on this list, and this was another one I read early on in my studies and said, oh man, um, because let's see where Nymphus is uh, listed in Colossians 4.15, one verse, salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. Well, what's the issue here? Pronoun says his, right? Um, and so I was like, well, this is women of the faith here. I got to look a little deeper and, and see what's going on here. Um, Nymphus is in the masculine, and um, from my studies, and again, I'm no uh, scholar in original languages or anything of that nature, but it, there is much debate over whether Nymphus should be Nympha, feminine, or Nymphus, masculine. And when you look at English translations, they're divided completely on it. And the manuscript tradition, the only thing different is, is an accent on the word, on the name, and the manuscripts are written differently. And so there's really, from what I can tell, no definitive way to know for sure whether this was a man or a woman. Um, the King James obviously says that it's a male. Young's literal translation says his and a male, Nymphus. If you look at the, the other English translations like NASB or ESV, they all say Nympha and the church was in her house. And so there's clearly some debate on those things. I don't think we can know and because of that, I don't think that it has really any bearing of any importance. This was a servant of the Lord that opened their home for the worship of God and for the saints to meet. Whether it was male or female, they were doing a work for the Lord. And really, their gender doesn't matter in this case at all. Number nine, Lydia. Um, this is now, so those were the eight others listed in Paul's letters, specifically by name. Uh, now we'll get into the two that I referenced from Acts uh, obviously Luke writing, but the history book and, and Paul had interactions. Lydia, we know a little more about um, uh, Paul uh, was going to go into Asia Minor to preach the gospel, and we know that the Holy Spirit forbade him for going, right? He was going to go in there. Holy Spirit says no. He has a dream, and he, he receives what, what we refer to as the Macedonia call, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the continent of Europe for the first time. And so God directs him and leads him, and they sail across the sea, uh, and the first city that we're recorded that they start working in the ministry in is Philippi. And Lydia becomes the first recorded convert uh, that, that uh, is saved in, uh, in Macedonia in this, this work of, of, of Paul there. Paul goes with his companions. We know that he was with his other preaching brethren. On the Sabbath day, they went out of the city. Let's go ahead and read it. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither, and a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. It's a beautiful story, really. Um, certainly could teach a whole lesson and, and preach on it, and I'm going to try to refrain from doing that. Uh, but Paul and his brethren, they go outside of the city uh, where there was a women's Bible study, a, a women's prayer meeting happening by the side of the river. And so these women had gathered together. Uh, and we hear of Lydia, who says, the Bible tells us, was a worshiper of God. But she clearly had never responded in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So at some point, she believed in, uh, she had uh, been a proselyte to Judaism and believed in in a monotheistic God. She had a form of religion and, and clearly had a desire to know more about him. And by the providence of God, he placed Paul and these brethren right there by her side as she desired to know God. And for the first time, it says that the Lord opened her heart. And she heard the voice of God through the Apostle Paul as he spoke. The Lord opened her heart. And clearly it was there that she was converted. She tells us that she was baptized. Her whole household came to know the Lord and was baptized. Uh, And what a beautiful thing happened there at the start of the Macedonia call. What we know about this woman was that she was a seller of purple, which uh, purple was expensive. It was the color of royalty. Uh, And she was a small business owner selling uh, this purple cloth, and that would infer that she was a woman of means. We know that she has a a house and that she's a seller of purple, and so that she had some sort of means. After she was baptized in her household, she compelled uh, Paul and his brethren to come, and and she cared for them in in her house, Uh, and it even references her at the end of chapter 16, uh, after Paul and Silas get out of prison with the encounter with the Roman jailer, uh, she also has them come back to her house in that moment and cares for them there. And so uh, then we're, we're introduced to Lydia. Now, the last one uh, here is Damaris. She's mentioned in Acts 17. Um, it says in, in verse 34, Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So the sermon on Mars Hill, when Paul was in Athens and he preached on Mars Hill, uh, the Bible records that there was a threefold response to the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the people that day. It says that some mocked him. It says some said, we want to hear you again on this matter. And thirdly, and praise the Lord, some believed. And amongst that group that believed was this woman, Damaris. Praise the Lord uh, for that account. All right, that all being said, whew. I'm going to get done with this one. All right, we're going we're gonna to do it. Uh, let's go ahead and look at Romans 16 now. We're going to read the first 16 verses where 10 women are mentioned, um, and we'll spend our time, rest of our time thinking on these things. Romans 16, verses 1 through 16. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is in Centrea, that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved, excuse me, Epinetus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia unto Christ. Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Salute Urbane, our helper in Christ. And Stachys, my beloved. Salute Apellus, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of Aristotle, Aristobulus's household, excuse me, salute Herodian, my kinsman, greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Salute Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobas, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. Salute Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints which are with them. Salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. All right. So, uh, you know, it's easy, I think, sometimes when you have a list of names like that to want to skip over that or to think that there's no significance. But This, as in the rest of Scripture, is breathed by God and profitable for us. And so uh, it quickly uh, gripped my heart with some of the the truths that can be pulled uh, from here. Now, 
the, when you see repetition in Scripture, that's kind of like the underline. There's something important going on there. And the word that continues to get repeated here in this list is the word salute or greet. Now, the same Greek word is used the whole way through. Sometimes it's translated salute. Sometimes it's translated greet. Same word. He's saying the same thing. Uh, uh, the, the Greek word is aspazomai. Uh, and what it means is, um, it is it is an imperative, it's a command to embrace or to draw to oneself, okay? So there's a fondness in this. It's more than just a dry, hey, salute this person or greet this person. There's a fondness as the Apostle Paul closes his letter to the saints in Rome that he wants these people to be embraced on his behalf, to greet them. He ends this portion with saying, greet them with a holy kiss. There's an affection and fondness and love that the Apostle Paul has for them. And he commends them, many of them, for a lot of the things that they did for the kingdom of God and specifically for Paul. And it's pretty profound the things that they did. So let's look at the women uh, found in this list. Uh, We're going to do an opposite order because there's more information at the beginning than there is at the end. So we're going to cover the women at the end and work our way back. So in verse 15, we have Julia and Narius's sister. Um, this is, again, the only place that they're listed. Uh, we really don't know much about them. Julia uh, is coupled with Philologus, so we can, as- we can assume there's a close relational bond. They were probably a husband and wife, uh, possibly uh, a sister, but they were connected there. Um, Uh, Other than the fact that they lived in Rome, that they were saints in Rome, that Paul was writing and greeting, uh, we know nothing more about them. Um, In the verse 13, and this this person quickly became a blessing to my heart, Rufus's mother. Um, She's not mentioned by name. She remains nameless. Uh, She is only referred to as Rufus's mother. Yet Paul, in one brief statement, attributes to her high praise, likening her to being a mother figure in his own life. He says, uh, he said there, Rufus's mother and mine. Which, the, what, what, that is, what Paul is saying is Rufus's literal mother became a figurative mother in his life. Think about just the impact of that, that God had put a woman in his life that would be a mother figure to her, to him, uh, as, as he greets her in Rome. Uh, it's pretty, pretty profound. Um, all right, um, Tryphena and Tryphosa and Persis are mentioned in verse 12. Uh, we don't know much about them other than Paul uh, commended them for their labor in the Lord. And he talked about their, their work ethic. They were hard workers for the Lord, uh, and he was saluting them for that. Um, both of them labor in the Lord. He called Persis beloved and again commended her for her hard work. Uh, most people think Tryphena, uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa were sisters. Um, but, again, we're not, we're not sure on that either. So, um, next is Junia. I mentioned in verse 7. Um, salute Andronicus and Junia. Now, there's a, some things said about them. I'm not going to read the, the whole passage. Uh, this seems to be, again, a husband and wife pair mentioned coupled together, Andronicus and Junia. Uh, Paul refers to them as my kinsmen. Now, Paul did this oftentimes just talking about other Jews. Most of the individuals here that he's writing to in Rome are Gentiles. There are a handful of Jews amongst them. So at minimum, he's talking about them being his kinsmen as their fellow Jews like Paul. Uh, However, he doesn't assign this to everyone, and so some people think that they could have been more uh, blood relation to Paul. Uh, Again, we can't can't conjecture that, but we do know that they were at least fellow Jews uh, with Paul. He says of them that they were fellow prisoners. Clearly, they were persecuted and suffered imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. And we know that the the imprisonments and the persecution that Paul faced, and as he considered this couple, he called them his fellow prisoners, and they were certainly persecuted and imprisoned for the Lord. He says they were of note among the apostles, so they were known. Their work for the Lord was, was known by the apostles. And lastly, he says they were in Christ before me. So they've been at it for a while. Before, before Paul was even converted, uh, these people were serving the Lord and um, living for the kingdom. And so Paul addresses them in that way. Uh, Mary, in verse 6, again, not much we know about her other than the, uh, that Paul 
commended her, greeted her for her profound work ethic in Christ's kingdom. And then we get to these last two, which we know significantly more about. Uh, and so we'll, we'll take some more time talking about them. And uh, again, pray that the Lord will, will speak to us in this. So Priscilla, um, we know more about Priscilla than anyone else uh, on this whole lesson uh, because Paul refers to her at least three times in his letters. And then we have significantly more details in Acts about the things that she did. Uh, and so we'll look at a few of those things uh, quickly. All right. Uh, Priscilla is also mentioned in the uh, reference in the Bible as Prisca. Uh, those are both her. Uh, one's a formal name and one is not. Um, and she is always, always referenced with her husband. It's always Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they're never referenced apart from each other. Um, and so we first come to know them in Acts 18. Uh, and let's go ahead and read that. Acts 18, verses 1 through 3. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them, and because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought. For their occupation, they were tent makers. Okay, so just think about the providence of God in all of this for a minute, okay? This is the founding of the church at Corinth. There would be a church planted there, souls saved. And at the very time that Paul... Uh, arrives in Corinth, there's a Roman emperor that is making an edict to kick all the Jews out of Rome. And in that, Aquila and Priscilla uh, are made to leave Rome, and they wind up at the same time in Corinth that Paul is there. And they have the same occupation, and they're, 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 um, they're Jews, uh, and they find each other, and God begins an important and amazing friendship in their lives that he would use uh, for his, his, his purposes. And so Paul lived with them and shared the gospel with both Jews and Gentiles um, as they labored together as tent makers uh, in the things that they did. And that began this, this friendship. Uh, we read in, in later in Acts 18 that, And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Centraea, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer, a longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. But I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. So when Paul left Corinth, headed to Syria, this friendship that he had made, uh, this, this husband and wife team for the Lord, uh, felt it in their heart to go with the Apostle Paul. And so they went with him into Syria and finally settled down in Ephesus. Now, when Paul was leaving Ephesus, it says they, they, they wanted him to stay. And I'm not sure that they is talking about them or the Jews in which Paul was teaching in the synagogue, or, or maybe both of them. Uh, but, but Paul said, no, I have to go on. And it's clear that they, Aquila and Priscilla, stayed in Ephesus uh, where the Lord was working mightily. And I think that Aquila and Priscilla... God placed them there as um, very purposeful uh, in that, that new, new church. So uh, Paul leaves, Aquila and Priscilla stay, and then what happens in Ephesus next I think is incredibly fascinating because we're introduced to Apollos, and we, we know that name, and we know that he was a preacher of the Lord. We know in Corinth that some people followed Apollos. Uh, they loved his style and who he was, and he was, he was a powerful preacher and all that, and we're introduced to him at the, in, in 18 in Ephesus. Let's read there. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and, a, and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass unto Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace, for he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Okay? Wrap your head around that for a minute, okay? Apollos comes to Ephesus, and the scripture says some pretty awesome things about him. He was an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, it said. He was instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in the spirit, and he spake and taught diligently the things of God. 
So clearly he was a God-fearing man. He had a good grasp on the Old Testament Scriptures. He was fervent and preached with boldness in the Spirit of the Lord. There was a lot of good that Apollos was doing. But what it says was that he, only, he knew only the baptism of John. And so John was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was preaching repentance and turning people towards the coming of Christ. And, and so Apollos clearly had a, he didn't have a complete understanding of the full person and work of Jesus Christ. And you, again, we, we, we look at that looking back and having the full scripture here, right? You think about him living in the first century and preaching out of the Old Testament and knowing about John, and clearly he was a righteous man, except his understanding of Christ and the full nature of the gospel was limited. And as he preached in the synagogue, Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They pulled him aside and they started to expound him and explain to him the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they clearly did it in a way that was humble and tactful, not making a public scene of things, but, but teaching him and showing him Jesus. And the, the, um, the fruits of the interaction are immediately seen because it says Apollos goes, uh, and it says showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ, taking what they had taught him uh, and using that with all the other wonderful things that it had already said about him. What an awesome thing that Priscilla and Aquila did there. All right, uh, at some point, obviously, they make their way back to Rome because this is where Paul is addressing them uh, in the letter to the Romans and references the church that is in their house. In 1 Corinthians, he referenced the church that was in their house in Ephesus. And so clearly they have a pattern of holding church within their home, and they did that wherever they went. And what an awesome, again, thing that can be said about them. In Romans, he says, uh, a few things about him. He says that they were the helpers in Christ Jesus. And he said, they have for my life laid down their own necks. What a more awesome commendation that Paul could give as he thought about them, Aquila and Priscilla, that they were willing to lay down their own life, to put their own neck on the line for the sake of the Apostle Paul's life. What an amazing thing that is. All right, Phoebe uh, is the last one listed. Um, and Phoebe... Uh, is the first one listed, and she's a little different because Paul is commending Phoebe to the Romans. All right, I'm going to read some of this uh, because I need to get through it quickly, but it says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is in Centrea, that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need for you, for she hath been a succorer of many and of myself also. Phoebe is mentioned only once in Scripture, here at the start of Paul's greetings, at the close of Romans. She is listed first, and more is said about her uh, compared to most others in the list. Paul is commending Phoebe to the saints in Rome, and, is, and it is clear that Paul holds her in high regard. She belonged and served in the church in Centrea, which was a port city about seven miles east of Corinth, where Paul, in Corinth, was writing the letter to the Romans. Now, there's a subscription at the end of, of Romans 16. At the very end of it, if you look down at the very bottom uh, there, there's a little subscription at the bottom that says, written to the Romans from Corinthus and sent by Phoebe, servant of the church in Centria. Now, there is significant amount of debate over whether this was inspired, that subscription portion of it, whether that was added by a scribe or whether that is part of the inspired scripture. I don't want to get into any of that uh, because at the end of the day, it's clear by the context of verses 1 and 2 that Paul was commending Phoebe to the Romans because she was taking the letter of the Romans to them. Paul wrote it. She was bringing it to them. So even though some people debate whether that was added or not, almost nobody argues that the content within it is true. So it seems like a little bit of a foolish debate, honestly. Uh, but the reality is, is, is Paul is telling the Roman people to accept her in, uh, to telling them that, that she's our sister, she's a servant in the church, and she needs to be treated as becometh a saint, like a saint of God. Adding that they should help her and provide for her in whatever she needs. Relating that she had been a succorer of many and of him as well. Now what that means is she was a patroness. She was a patron. Um, she was a selfless provider for the needs of many that serve Christ's kingdom. She would have been a woman with at least some degree of wealth and clearly used it to support those who labored in the gospel. 
Paul's emphatic commendation of her speaks to her continued faithfulness to come to the aid of God's servants. All right. Now, she's the most highly debated in this list uh, because of the word Paul uses to describe her, diakonos. Um, that word diakonos, which in the King James is translated as servant, is the same word that we translate to deacon, deacon. And so many people have claimed that Phoebe was a deaconess. She filled an official role within the church in Centrea because she was a, de- a deacon, deaconess of Centrea. And so the debate is, did she hold official office in the church in that position or not? Now, while I think there is some room for debate and discussion on it, uh, I believe wholeheartedly that she did not hold an official position in the church as a deacon. And I'll tell you a few reasons why uh, I believe that. And we'll just, just read them. So, um, Paul uses uh, this word Paul uses to describe Phoebe. Some believe that Phoebe held an official office of deaconess in the church of Centrea. The word, however, predates the office of deacon and was commonly used to describe anyone who served others. We see this use in John 2.5, Matthew 23.11, for example. There's many others where the exact same word is used to describe service to another. In the King James, it can be translated as deacon or minister is often the same word, uh, and, and it can be used to refer. Uh, in John 2, 5, it was those that had, went and got the water pots for Jesus. They were servants in, 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 for him. Uh, and so the word predates the office altogether, and it means a servant. Um, I believe the office of deacon, as we use it today, began in Acts 6. When they were instructed to look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And that some of the qualifications for the office of a deacon listed in 1 Timothy are to be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. It seems evident that Phoebe did not hold the official office of a deacon in the church, but that that should not diminish in any way her faithfulness to serve the Lord and his servants. She was a faithful servant of the Lord. All right. Now, uh, I know my my time is running uh, quick. I I think I can get through this very quickly, so I just ask you to bear with me for a little longer here. So in summary, these are some of the things that Paul said about these women. One, they were beloved friends, sincere in faith, a grandmother who spiritually impacted her grandchildren, a mother who spiritually impacted her child, teaching the scriptures to their children, labored side by side with Paul in the gospel, in prison for Christ's sake, hosted churches in their homes, given the responsibility of important acts of service for the churches, sister in the Lord, servant of the church, patron to many, friends and travel companions, intelligent, tactful, humble, helpers in Christ, risked their own life for Paul's, and even someone who was a mother to him. As we reflect on the impact these women had on Paul's life and for the advancement of Christ's kingdom, I want for a second to consider what happened to Paul when he was converted, when he was saved and began to follow Christ, okay? In Philippians 3, 8, and 9, Paul says this, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Now, Paul had just made a list that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and of the tribe of Benjamin, and uh, according to the law of Pharisee, and he, he had it listed these things that he once counted as gain, but when he won Christ, they became loss. Um, and, and I think clearly there were some things within him that he thought those, those things made him right with God, and he realizes that it was Christ alone that can make him right with God. There were some internal things happening there. But I think he's talking very literally here when he says that he lost all things. As an Orthodox Jew, Saul of Tarsus, When he would have confessed faith in Jesus Christ and begin to follow him, he would have been disinherited by those around him. He would have lost his standing within the Jewish community. He would have lost his friends on the Sanhedrin. He would have lost all of the prestige that he had built up within his community. He would have lost friends, family, prestige, all of that. I think he lost it all when he began to follow Christ. He suffered the loss of all things. Now, according to Paul here, he said, I counted them all as dung or rubbish compared to winning Christ. When you compare the two, it didn't matter. But as you think about the weight of everything that he lost, some might say it appears to be a little overwhelming what you lose when you follow Christ. Peter once announced before Jesus that he and the other disciples had left all to follow him. And Jesus answered him this in Mark 10. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, 
or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake and the gospels, listen, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. Jesus answered that while their ultimate reward would be in the world to come, that those who forsook all for Christ will receive a hundredfold now in time. You have to think that as Paul was listing off these names as they flowed from his heart, talking about his beloved sister Phoebe and those that were his fellow prisoners and Rufus's mother that was like his mother, he must have thought of the promise of Christ that he said, those that forsake all and follow me, I will give to them now a hundredfold. And Paul wants to embrace these people that God had put into his life, giving him a hundredfold by the family of God in which he planted him in. What an amazing thing that that is. Paul wrote often of his adoption into the family of God. It would seem he was fully aware that Christ had within the family of God given him a hundredfold all that he had lost to follow Christ. In the 16 verses of Romans, uh, this is the breakdown. Ten women, 19 men, some married couples, several families, some Jews, some Gentiles, some were people of wealth, others had common slave names. This group of people would never be found in a list together outside of the family of God. No way. Definitely not in the first century. Okay? You can't dismiss the fact that he makes this list of men and women and slaves and wealthy people with no distinction between their gender or their wealth or any of those things, but he loves them all and commends them for their faithful service to the Lord. What an amazing list that this is. We can... um, Many of those listed included women and slaves that were treated with little to no value within the culture and historical settings in which it was written. Yet Paul makes no distinction as he writes with great affection for them. God had gathered up the broken and divided fragments of Roman society and built them into a glorious body of Christ, working side by side for the common cause of Christ's kingdom. Paul wrote twice in the, when he wrote to the churches of Galatia and to the saints at Colossae, he said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. All of those are, are in this list of Romans. Greek, Jew, male, female, bond, free, they're all associated here in these greetings in Romans 16. But he said, they are all one in Christ Jesus. He said, similar in Colossians, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Listen. The most glorious reality concerning the women in this study is not their womanhood or their feminine individualism. It's that they are part of something far bigger than themselves. That they, having become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, chose to selflessly serve the Lord by serving those who labored in the gospel. In Matthew 20. 26 and 27, Jesus says this, But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. That word minister? Diakonos. Same word for deacon. It means a servant. He says, But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your servant. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came, not to be ministered to or to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Phoebe was like Christ. She was a servant. She was a diakonos. And we think that we have to elevate her to some official position in the church to give her the honor that she deserves. No, she was like Jesus Christ. She was a servant. She's numbered amongst the greatest. And so young women, don't seek accolades and offices and positions. Seek to be a servant of the Most High God. You'll be numbered amongst the greatest. In Matthew 10, Jesus is sending His disciples out to preach the gospel. And He instructs them in verses 9 and 10, Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes nor staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. What's He saying? Pack light. He's telling His disciples that are going out to preach the gospel, He says, says, pack light and go with haste. 
I got my people out there that are going to provide for you. There are people that that are out there that should provide for you. You go preach the gospel. You are worthy of the support you receive. At the end of that discourse, this is is awesome. Thank you for bearing with me. At the end of that discourse, he says this in Matthew 10, 40 and 42. Whoever receives you, that's the, the disciples going out, receives me, Jesus speaking. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say unto you, he will by no means lose his reward. Think about that. Think about the Apostle Paul. What what rewards do you think he'll receive on the last day? Forsaking all to follow Christ. Traveling miles to preach the gospel. Beaten, persecuted, imprisoned. He ministered other ministers and gave his life for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel. Think of the reward he will receive for the labors in which he did. And I want you to know this. Phoebe will share in the same reward. Whoever receives a prophet receives me. He will receive the prophet's reward. (laughs) Phoebe, who served the church and who provided and came to the aid of many, including Paul, will share in the same reward. Priscilla, who with her husband opened their home for the work of the gospel and became companions to Paul, risking their necks for his life, will share in the same reward. Rufus's mother, (laughs) don't even know her name, she'll share in the same reward. Because she was a mother to a man that had forsaken all for the sake of Christ. I'll close with this. One thing made clear in Paul's closing in Romans is that it is not unspiritual to thank someone for their service in God's kingdom. I used to think that. I was too pious. Only God deserves thanks. I need to read my Bible a little more. (laughs) It is not unspiritual or unscriptural for people to thank those in their lives that labor for the Lord, not at all, and for the kingdom of the Lord. So in the example of the Apostle Paul, I close with this. Thank you, Judy, my mother, for teaching me the scripture from my youth and whose sincere faith and quiet obedience have deeply impacted my walk with the Lord. Thank you, Kathleen and Brad, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who have so often been the encouragement and counsel my family has needed at just the right time. Thank you, Guyana, who is a patron of many, and to myself as well. Thank you, Janet, who labors with me in the gospel. And thank you, Ashley, my beloved sister, who has worked tirelessly for God's kingdom. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thankful for your attention, and I appreciate your patience. May God bless you and your churches and your labors for the Lord.